Is anyone here familiar with Newton's first law of motion? How's that for a trivia question? (laughs) It goes as this. An object at rest, meaning not moving, will stay at rest unless an outside force acts upon it. In other words, things don't just change. Not unless something from the outside forces it to change or allows it to change. Unless something new is introduced, everything's going to stay the way it always has been, is what this law means. And this concept is constantly on my mind this time of year especially. Because, you know, maybe I'm older and wiser, or maybe I'm just cranky and cynical. But I see so many people this time of year saying, this is going to be my year. These are my goals. I'm going to gain this. I'm going to lose that. We're going to accomplish X, Y, and Z this year. And I just want to say to these people, great. What's your plan to do so? And I just know half of the people I ask will be like, plan? What's this? That's a problem. Because without a plan, without a goal, without a way of getting there, nothing's going to change. I heard one person say that in five years, you'll be the same person you are today, except for the books you read and the people you meet. Those are two forces that bring about change. New information introduced into our minds and new people around us that will encourage us and bring us up in the faith and in other things in life. (laughs) And I bring this up because as I mentioned in our newsletter, The Open Door, uh, something about this time of year just causes us to reevaluate our goals, to look into the past that we enjoyed last year and say, what, what did I do? What did I accomplish? What, what changed? And what do I want to continue to change as we move into this new year? What do I want to be? But unless we actually take steps towards those goals, you know, nothing is going to change. Because it's been said that a goal without a plan is called a wish. And wishes don't actually change anything. Unless you're a Disney princess, of course. Only then, when you wish upon a star, dreams come true. No, that's, that's, not, that's only half the story. And here's what I mean by that. A number of years ago, I heard about a farmer who planted his crop and then stood steadfast on his porch, watching every day to see if his crops would grow. And, every, and neighbors would come by, and they'd ask what's going on, and he would say, I have faith that my crops are going to grow. And that's what he'd say time and time again to every visitor who would come by. Until eventually one neighbor was wise enough to ask, you know, hey, it's great that you have faith, but have you tried watering your plants? You see, he had faith, and that's great. We ought to have faith. But we need to understand the process of how growth actually works if we expect to see anything, to get the results that he and indeed we want. See, that's the whole point of Jesus' teaching on the mustard seed, which we'll eventually get to in Scripture. It's not about the amount of faith that you have. It's whether or not your faith is in the right place. If your faith is in the right process. And so the question emerges, what is our process for spiritual growth? And that's where 
our reading from Acts chapter 2 comes in, specifically verse 42, where we're going to be zeroing in on today, because this is the recipe for Christian growth and change in our lives. And indeed, even, even by way of application, the church as well. I find it fascinating that so many churches spend years and countless resources and study groups studying how to craft a perfect mission statement. And yet God has already given us one. He's already told the church what he wants it to do. There's no mystery that requires study groups. We just got to do what it says. But we'll get to that in a minute. Let me just reread verse 42 real quick from our text. Because I really want to just zero in on this this morning. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. You know, the key to most things in life, success in most things in life is not complex. Most things are fairly simple. The financial guru Dave Ramsey was once asked, what was the secret to a lucrative investment by an interviewer? And the questioner was expecting an answer related to interest rates and market timing or an exact ratio of mutual funds to real estate investments, all these complicated things. And his answer surprised him. Because without batting an eye, this real estate guru said, the secret to lucrative investments that has been researched and proven time and time again is to put money in your investments. That's how you get it. You see, it doesn't matter what your strategy is if you don't put money in. You can't expect a big harvest if you don't sow the seed. You see the point that is going here. You know, and it, it's granted, some are better than others. There's better strategies than worse. He's not marginalizing that, but he's simply pointing out that he's met many millionaires throughout their years who got their money not from perfectly crafted financial asset management, but plenty of met plenty of millionaires who just made their money by putting money in their four hundred one k every month, and. Lo and behold, the process did the job over time. Those who put in the basics over time got to reap the investment later. And in that same vein, when I read Acts chapter 2, I see four things that every Christian ought to be regularly practicing if we want to see that growth in our life. And none of it is complicated. We just have to do it. And you'd be amazed what God is able to do over time if we commit to the process. And that being said, the very first thing that I see in our text this morning is that they devoted themselves to these things. They're not passively doing these things when they're easy or when they're convenient or when everyone else in their social group is committed to the same thing. But they are devoted and committed to these things. Now, that's not a word you hear a lot in church anymore. Commitment. But it's a powerful process. And it's an agent that God often uses to bring change. (laughs) Because look, passively doing any of the things we're going to cover this morning will do nothing more than a check or religious box. 
And there's no power to checking a religious box. There's nothing powerful inherently about doing something just for the sake of doing something. But there's great power in meeting with the living God. Amen, church? So with that in mind, that God would speak to us and meet with us and tell us what his will is for our life when God's given us a book that does exactly that. It's usually often, too often, collecting dust on a shelf somewhere. That's our problem. But it's the primary way God speaks to his people. It's how we learn his will. I find it amazing that some of the most important questions people ask about God ask, well, what is he like? What makes him happy? What pleases him? What displeases him? What is sin? How do I avoid sin? How do I deal with this sin in my life? And we find ourselves saying, man, don't, boy, don't you just wish God wrote something about these things? Turns out he did. Turns out he did. You know, we have a bad habit in America about making mysteries out of certainties. There's nothing mystical about it. We just got to go to where it is. And those of you who have decided to go on the journey through the scriptures with us this year will find answers to those questions and many more. When we said earlier that, you know, the things that often bring change in our life are the books we read and the people we meet. I mean, if you got to choose one of each category, ought that book to be scripture? And ought that one person ought to be regularly meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ? So that being said, are we in the word? That's the first step that I see here. The other thing that we ought to devote ourselves to, according to Acts 2.42, is fellowship. Now, what's fellowship? It's being together with other believers in love, in unity, and in community with one another. That we need to be with each other to mutually encourage one another, to, to do life together, to build up one another in the faith. We're not meant to be doing this alone as Christians. It's almost a contradiction in terms. And frankly, that's something I hear about all the time these days. You know, the big thing today is people saying, oh, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I can do church at home which is almost true, but completely wrong at the same time. And now look, we we got people joining us online this morning, I'm sure, who can't physically be in here, who are sick and have obligations this particular weekend. There's plenty of grace for that. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, But specifically those who say they don't need to be here, they can do their own thing at home. There's a problem with that because the very word church means assembly. It's God's assembly of believers together. That's church. So saying you're doing church alone in your own home is the same as saying I'm going to have a family reunion by myself. It's a contradiction in terms. It doesn't work like that. And there's a reason why we're called to be with each other. Not just for legalistic purposes. It's not to get you all in the same room so we can get your tithe. None of that. No, it's, here's what happens to you. Because as Christians, it's like being around a campfire. 
And now I myself, you know, being an Eagle Scout, have spent hundreds of hours around a campfire. So this illustration really speaks to me. But if I've noticed that once you get a good fire going, you got the log stacked just the right way and you're burning the really big stuff, at that point, those logs will burn all night. You might still need to hose it off in the morning. But, if, but I've noticed if you take even one of those big logs out, from the middle of the fire, and you set it outside of the fire, within a couple of minutes, that big log goes out all on its own in just a couple of minutes being outside the fire. And guys, that's you. That's you, and that's me. I've seen this in my own life. You know, It might not be minutes later, praise God, we all got to go home and have lunch, but It might be a season or two. It might be a year. But at some point, if you remove yourself from fellowship with other believers, you're going to wake up one day, look at your life, and say, man, when did the fire in my heart go out? And like I said, that's all of us. That's exactly why Hebrews 10 specifically warns us not to forsake the assembly of believers as was the habit of some even in the first century, but to build up one another, mutually encouraging one another, mutually keeping us on fire in the faith together. So we have the reading of the word of God, fellowship with the people of God. What's next in our passage? We have breaking bread. Now, part of that ties over into fellowship, but it includes a lot more than fellowship. It includes this table. It's communion, the Lord's Supper, breaking bread together as Christians, remembering what that breaking of bread represents. As the early church was assembling regularly to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. Not as an empty ritual, by the way, but to praise God worship and exalt God by doing so. You know, to be reminded regularly of the wonderful cross where Jesus bore your sins and mine for the sins of the whole world. His broken body, his blood poured out to give us the gift of eternal life. Because after all, what what is the purpose of communion? Well, it's to remember and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That we're all better off by regularly remembering the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection regularly until he returns. So the question emerges, are you regularly remembering what God has done for us? Are you worshiping God just on Sundays or throughout the rest of the week? No, do, do you or do we listen to Christian media throughout the week reminding us of these promises or listening to Christian teachings or reading Christian literature that reminds us of these precious truths? I think we'd all benefit from surrounding ourselves with more and more Christian materials to remind us of these truths, to exalt God in our hearts with whatever's going on in our life. You know, I had a friend of mine a number of years ago go through a bit of a crisis. And in response, they printed Bible verses and plastered them all over their house. 
as they were going through this trial. They even printed one and post and put it right above where they sleep at night. So the first thing they would see in the morning was scripture as they're going through this trial. And even after that, as soon as they woke up, the first thing they had going for them was Christian music and kept it going all day long. And don't you think that had a sanctifying effect on them and their family? Don't you think that might have helped them pull through such a difficult season? Why wait for a crisis to do that? Why, if we have the ability to draw nearer to God, why don't we? We should do that all the time so he's all the closer when those trials do arrive. And they will. They will for all of us. So why wait? So we've had the reading of the word of God, fellowshipping with the people of God, worshiping and exalting God. And finally, we have meeting with God in prayer. We see finally in this last part of this verse. We say we want to grow. We say we want to change, that we have these sins in our hearts that we want to more fully surrender to Jesus. We want to live this sanctified life. We want to love God more. We want to be more like him. Then why don't we ask him for this? Why aren't we meeting with him to get the power to actually do this? Why aren't we praying for the strength and desire to have this fellowship with God? You know, it reminds me of the book of James that says you do not have because you do not ask. That's the disconnect right there. Dr. Del Tackett once said that if we really believed what the Bible says about prayer, if we really believe that when we get on our knees, that in a spiritual sense, the heavens are rendered open and we are spiritually transported before the throne of God, and he somehow pauses from maintaining and sustaining the universe and looks down at me in my lowly estate and says, Welcome, John. What's on your heart this morning? What can I do for you? If we really believe that's what happens every time we pray... The problem wouldn't be getting us to pray. It would be getting us to stop, get off our knees, and go about our day. We have this completely backwards. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil have deceived us into thinking that there's more important things we can do than pray. Or thinking that that's a last resort thing. Or that, oh, there's other more important things we ought to be taking care of. But then on the other hand, you have Martin Luther, who was busier than all of us. You know, I think I'm busy, you know, with what I'm doing with my family and my church. Martin Luther had a family and a whole reformation he was starting. And here's what this man said. He said, I have so much to do. Therefore, I must spend the first three hours of my day in prayer. Oh, what, what would happen if we adopted that mindset? <laughs> But too often, we again, we don't think we have time. But if you're wondering where the time is, for some of us, I'll tell you where it is. John Piper once famously said that the existence of Facebook has revealed that our excuse that we don't have time to pray is a complete lie. Let me see your phone. Let me see your budget. I'll tell you where your time and attention is going. I point the finger at myself, too. There's all things we could more fully refine. More to correctly find the time for the things that matter. 
Because it's not that we don't have time. It's that we have idols. We have idols of distraction, idols of pleasure, idols of leisure, and so much more. And it just reminds me of the hymn that we love singing in here that says, Oh, the peace we often forfeit. Oh, the needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. <laughs> I, was, uh, I once heard the story of Charles Spurgeon, who had a thriving church in London many years ago. And he was once asked by somebody entering his church before the service, hey, so um, why is your church so successful? Why, are, why is it thriving? Why is there so much power in your church? And he said, come with me, I'll show you. And he took this young inquirer to a back room in the church where a prayer meeting was happening. Tons of people were gathered together to pray for the service, for their pastor, for the people, for the needs of the congregation. And he said, this is the engine room of this church. That's where the power is. We ought not to forget how, just how powerful prayer is and how deep the need of a church is for prayer. We certainly coveted here at this church. I have to stop there for time, but there's so much more that could be said on all of these things, but I just really wanted to show us where, give us an overview of the most important things as we're starting this new year so that we could see how it all fits together. How, how, those, how those big four things we ought to prioritize in this new year. And I could add to this list, obviously, you know, there's plenty of things implied if you finish just even that paragraph that we read together of telling people about Christ, about serving Christ, about the good work of serving one another. And plenty more could be said here, but you know, it gives us an overview of where we ought to be. And as we look at these things, the word of God, fellowshipping with the people of God, worshiping God, and meeting with God in prayer, none of that is complicated. None of that is hard. None of you need a four-year theology degree to do them. We just begin with where we are. There's no spiritual mystery. We just got to do them. And if you are on a good trajectory or you're satisfied with the same person you were last year, you are welcome to keep going about the way things were. And I'm not saying that you know, you're a good Christian just because you faithfully do these four things every day. Or that you're a bad Christian if you don't. That's not my point here. Please don't hear that coming from me. Because you can't earn or lose God's favor by your performance. We shouldn't have it in the first place. It's a gift of grace. God's love and pleasure with his people. It's not something I've earned, so I can't lose it through my good or bad works. But my point is, if you do want to change, if you want to grow deeper in your relationship with God, turn from your sins, turn towards Jesus Christ. And if you focus on these things in this new year and devote yourself to this process, you just might be surprised what God will do. So please, church, resolve this year to have better resolutions than some of your friends. 
Resolve this year to be in the word of God. Resolve this year to be in fellowship with the people of God. To praise, worship, and exalt God, and to meet with him in prayer. That is the best gift you can give yourself, you can give your family, and you can give our church this year. Thanks be to God. Amen.